Well, happy birthday to us, meaning me and Roscoe, as he has just celebrated a birthday, and mine is a couple of days away. Welcome again to Booth One, exploring the arts and popular culture around the country and the globe. Well, this may be our most thoroughly Booth One podcast since we began over a year ago. We had the great good fortune to attend two pretty exclusive events, which we'll get to shortly, but I want to keep the suspense going just a few minutes longer, so I'm burying the lead. Mm. Let me just say, hail to the chief of podcast sidekicks, Roscoe. Happy birthday, my friend. Thank you. Happy birthday to you. You know, we're both Pisceans, you and I. I know. Uh, which is, in my opinion, the best astrological sign to be. Well, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, it's in my opinion. The fish. And in honor of our Piscean backgrounds, I have to uh, read you a bit of a story that I found recently. A free diver swimming off the coast of Florida hypnotized a 10-foot dusky shark. Have you ever been hypnotized, Roscoe? I don't think so. I I don't think I've ever been hypnotized. Nor have I ever hypnotized a shark. Well, this guy claims to have hypnotized a shark and then extracted a large fishing hook that was stuck in the predator's mouth all while holding his breath because he was free diving. He wasn't wasn't scuba diving. He was free diving. Michael Domelis, 32-year-old Michael Domelis, pacified the beast by placing his hands on either side of the shark's snout, a technique called tonic immobility. I, have you ever heard of this? No. I've, I've, heard of, I've heard of gin and tonic immobility. Are you reading from the National Enquirer? Uh, I am reading from a very reputable source. The self-employed diver filmed himself gently removing the stainless steel hook from the docile shark and hopes the footage will improve people's understanding of the creatures. Said uh, Michael, quote, sharks are not what Hollywood has made them out to be. Sharks are not monsters. I hope you wrote a letter to the editor. Sharks are, in fact, monsters. <laughs> and they may be hypnotizable, but they're still hypnotizable monsters. Yeah, they're predatory, homicidal, maniac they fish. They are. Well, this guy, I, you know, I don't know how he... I don't know how he even knew how to do this, to grab the shark by the snout on either side. And, I mean, what did he say? You're, you're a pussy cat. <laughs> Count to ten, and you'll be a kitty cat. You'll be the most docile kitty. I, I don't know what. Uh, he maybe the said. shark was so shocked to have someone touch him that he became, he was like playing dead or something. Somebody has posted some video on Facebook of them petting a tropical fish. Fish are the only thing I have phobias. Well, that's funny because you're afraid of sharks, and I can't go to aquariums. If I go to an aquarium, I have dreams for nightmares for days that I'm waking up in my bed and I'm covered with dead fish and I can't get out of the bed because the fish are so slippery. I love aquariums. Mm-hmm. I can't, you don't like aquariums? No, What's I, wrong because with I have nightmares afterwards. Well, I like looking at the fish. They're and behind then, the glass. I mean, but in the dreams and the nightmares and the screaming continue for days. <laughs> the screaming. I, I wake up the fish scream. are screaming. Well, if, now I'm screaming. If you if you woke up and you were in a bed covered with 300 giant slippery fish and you couldn't get out of bed, wouldn't Have you those scream? fish stopped screaming, Clarice? <laughs> <laughs> well, I I love aquariums. The, we were in Washington D.C. Yeah, the signs of the fish. We were in Washington D.C. recently, and I thought, you know, I, I always love an aquarium. Let's go to the National Aquarium, and I found it on one of the maps that we had, and then I pulled out another map and it wasn't on that map 
So I said, well, I better look it up and see what their hours are and make sure they're all in the same place. Guess where the National Aquarium is? It's been relocated to Maryland. Baltimore. Baltimore, yes. Maryland. It's in Baltimore, Maryland. No longer yeah. in D.C. So don't go to D.C. Well, to see you know, the we fish. Have, they have all those new museums on the Smithsonian campus. Yeah. yeah. Native it, American Museum. That's African where it American. was. It was on the north side of the mall, right before you get to the mall. Um, but no longer. Yep. Don't go there. Well, you wouldn't go anyway because you're afraid of the screaming fish. The screaming Clarice. fish. Hey, something that'll interest you, and you may have heard about this, there's going to be a one-woman show off-Broadway coming up soon. Barbara Cook, Tony and Grammy winner and longtime Broadway fixture, will appear in a one-woman off-Broadway show inspired by her, uh, her coming memoir, Barbara Cook Then and Now. I, I, I know you're a big Barbara Cook fan. <laughs> Can you, can you explain to the listeners that my jaw is on the floor right now? <laughs> yeah. How can this be? Bar- Barbara Cook is about 86 years old. It's to begin performances on April 13th at the New World Stages in New York. Uh, opening night is scheduled for May 4th. You know, we may very well be in New York at the oh, end of my God. April uh, to chat with friend of the show, Cheetah Rivera, and, and why couldn't we show. chat with friend of the show, Barbara Cook? We may, in fact, uh, have to. It's got a planned run through June 26, so very short, about six weeks. The show is conceived by James Lapine and directed by Tommy Toon. Oh, my God. I have to, this, new reasons to live. Another chance to see Barbara Cook. Right, and it shares a title with Miss Cook's upcoming memoir to be published by HarperCollins this summer. So this is the preview of it. Uh, Miss Cook at 88 said in a statement that the show would be a live companion piece to the book, an intimate look at her career and experiences with alcoholism and depression, as well as triumphs and roles that brought her acclaim. And given the emotional subject, Ms. Cook said in an interview, she may not include her life's darker moments in the cabaret-style act. It's one thing to sit quietly somewhere and write about it, she said. It's another to do it on stage and it sounds kind of icky on stage. <laughs> <laughs> if you said to me, Ross, you have, you have, there's, you can only see one more concert in your lifetime. And I could choose who, who I, I would think I would say, I, I want to see Barbara Cook one more time. Really? Yes. You wouldn't say uh, Streisand? No. You wouldn't say uh, Liza? No. Really? Barbara, Barbara Cook. Cook. And do you know why that is? My first memories of listening to anything is by, we would go to church on Sunday and, and for, for seemingly years, we'd come home after church and my father would put the music man on the stereo. <laughs> <laughs> so I grew up as a small child listening to the music man with Barbara Cook. And her, as did I. And, and, and I can see that album cover like it, it was yesterday. The cartoon drawing with her legs sort of kicked up kind in the air. Kind of dancing, flying through the air yes. kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I became reacquainted with her when I was a teenager and she started doing studio albums. And the, I have I seen her in concert 30 times, 50 times? I don't know. I worked, worked at a nightclub in Chicago and, and she played there twice and I would see both shows every night for two weeks. And I might have her phone number. I know I have her address of her home, so I could write to her. Well, you're, you're flushed with excitement. I'm flushed with excitement. I can't believe I'm the one breaking this news to you. I I'm know. so happy that I'm the one breaking the I news know. to you. I know, and I once said it years ago I, when I worked in um, network radio. I was behind the scenes. I sat in on an, an, an interview that she did, with, which was a good hour talking about her career. Mm. Cheetah Rivera and Barbara Cook in the same New York visit. That would be 
quite the coup. I mentioned just a little bit ago that we were in Washington, D.C. just recently. And the real reason we were in Washington, D.C. is to take advantage of what I consider maybe one of the ultimate Booth One experiences of my life and maybe of lots of people's lives. We have a friend who's worked for the Obama administration uh, for the last eight years in varying capacities. Uh, her name is Bess Evans. The East Wing tour is available by calling your congressman and getting special dispensation. Lots of people can do that. You can no longer just line up as the public. The West Wing is even more complicated to get involved with. You actually have to be okayed and approved, and you have to be escorted by an administrative staff member, even if it's Bess Evans or the Secretary of State mm -hmm. or Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. uh, it is virtually impossible to get into the West Wing unless you absolutely know somebody. And then that somebody also has to be willing to take you on the tour. Well, Bess was gracious and kind enough to take six of us on a tour of the West Wing one evening. It was eight o'clock at night, and Bess gave us what I would consider, and you correct me if you think I'm wrong, maybe one of the greatest tours of any historical site that I have ever, ever experienced. Um, not just because the site itself is so unique, but her tour was magnificent. Well, her knowledge of what she was showing us and, and, and the history of the rooms. And we should cut to the chase. We got to see the Oval Office. We did. <laughs> the Oval Office. We did. And his, the cabinet rooms. And I think my favorite part was the Rose Garden. The Rose Garden area is really, really special between those, those columns, that colonnade. It's, it's known as the shortest commute in America because the president comes down the stairs from his private residence. He opens the doors onto the Rose Garden. He walks 50 feet, takes a left, walks another 40 feet, and there's his Oval Office. The roses were not in bloom, of course, this, is, this being March, but it, it, it was chilling to be on that spot, and I, I can't even explain why. Why, why was that such a, an emotional experience? Well, you can think of all the iconographic photographs that we've seen, can I say that? Think of all the famous photographs that we've seen <laughs> that have been taken in that part of the, the White House, the exterior of the White House. You can think of the Kennedy at the Cuban Missile Crisis especially. Yeah, I thought uh, the Rose Garden, as you say, was fantastic. I loved the Oval Office. It's really quite magnificent. And it's very neat. There's no, no debris and papers around. He, uh, the president has an office just uh, through a door off to the side of the Oval Office, which is his private office, which I imagine where most of his daily paperwork and things get done. The Oval Office is for holding meetings with his advisors and um, calling Putin and warning him about <laughs> missiles and stuff, I suppose. Is that why we didn't see ops. sticky notes? Because those would be in his little yeah, private no, office. Yeah, no, no sticky notes. But the, the Oval Office was absolutely cool, and there was a story about his desk. He is using what's known as the Resolute Desk. The HMS Resolute was a Navy, a British Navy ship that was part of a sort of a failed mission to find the Northwest Passage. The expedition was three ships and they got caught in the ice and uh, the Resolute and another ship had to be abandoned. Um, some years later, an American ship 
The Resolute, because it had been abandoned in the ice, the ice flows had drifted it uh, some 1,000 or 1,200 miles, miles from its original place. So they came upon this ship not expecting it to be there uh, because it was nowhere near where it had been um, uh, abandoned. And the captain of the American ship split his crew and they sailed it back to America. Then someone in Congress, a, a senator in the United States Congress, said, I think we should refit this ship and we should return it to the British in pristine condition as a gift from America to Britain. And that's exactly what they did. And uh, the Queen at the time was so touched and moved that it went a long way towards relieving the tensions that were going on between Britain and America at the time. Eventually, many of the timbers from that ship were taken off, and she had two desks made. This is the Queen of England. She had two desks made, and one of the desks she gave to the President of the United States as a thank you gift. And this desk now exists. This desk has been used by many, many presidents, including Obama now. It was given to the United States, and it wasn't used in the White House until uh, Roosevelt's administration, FDR. And then he had something... Right, he had uh, a panel put in. He had a panel put in so that people couldn't see his leg braces. And he used it. I think all the presidents used it. Through Kennedy, for sure. Through Kennedy. And it was so... I, I would call it the Kennedy desk. And there's the famous picture of John John playing under the desk and coming out through the, the panel. That's my image of the desk. Um, and it had been, you know, Ronald Reagan had, had, a, had it raised a little because his legs were too long and didn't fit underneath it comfortably. But after Kennedy was assassinated, Johnson wouldn't use it. Nixon didn't use it, Ford didn't use it, and Carter brought it back out of storage. And it's been used since then. And it was, I mean, we were, what, what were we, 20 feet from it, possibly? By I want to say 12. <laughs> I want to say if I'd reached really hard, I could have petted it. 12 feet from stardom. We saw the press room. Uh, we were able to take pictures in front of the press podium. I was able to sit in seats that are reserved for NBC and yes. the New York Times and the Reuters and ABC. It, 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 the, the press room is quite small. We were told a story about where the term press pool comes from. Apparently, right below the press room, there is a swimming pool, an indoor swimming pool, also, uh, I think, built by FDR so that he could exercise. One of the presidents decided Nixon. that they needed a room. Yeah, he was tired of having the press always asking him questions. Uh, and too close. And being too close. So he had this press room created. They covered over a sea. They put a ceiling over that pool. And they created this tiny press room. It's not very big. No. It's very cramped. The pool still exists below the press. And so it's called the press pool. The press pool. And the pool is now filled with cables. <laughs> yes. Cabling for all of the cameras. Miles and, and miles and miles of cabling. Right. Yeah. So a press pool is not an expression where you had like a pool of reporters. It was referred to the swimming pool. And also the Rose Garden is not named the Rose Garden because of roses, but it was created by Jacqueline Kennedy in honor of Rose Kennedy. That's correct. So it's the Rose Kennedy Garden. Best pointed out that it, it was dark, and we were standing right on the edge of the flagstones before you would step onto the lawn by the Rose Garden roses, and there was a stanchion there. Modest, very small, mm -hmm. but in, obviously indicating, please don't go beyond this point. And Best pointed out the fact that 
You can't really see it from here, but you know, that hut over there, that's not just there with some lights on it because it's nice and pretty. There are definitely snipers and they're watching our every move. You see over between those trees, see that car? <laughs> it was this black <laughs> sedan. You could barely see it. Just, there are guys in there. They're watching us. They're watching you. Look up on the roof. See, it looks like there's nobody up there on that colonnade. Trust me, they're there and they have high-powered rifles. At one point, we're walking down the hall and a room that we're not allowed to look in or go in as guests was the Situation Room. The room was the area where President Obama and his staff gathered to watch the finding and killing of Osama bin Laden. Very famous picture uh, of them in the Situation Room. Well, some woman was walking down the hall, and she was headed for the door, and Beth said, okay, okay, stand right here, stand right here. She's going to open the door, she's going to open the door, and you guys can look right in. And indeed, yeah, she punched in some code, she opened the door, and actually she held it open for a yeah. few seconds so that we could see inside yeah. the situation room. Another thrilling moment was when a harried woman ran by us carrying a heavy box of printing that you could you could see was still dry, drying, and that they, they were official briefing documents for President Obama. All of it was just magnificent when it was over. And this went on for about an hour and 45 minutes or so. Uh, I said to Bess Evans, I'm exhausted. And not because of walking around. It really isn't that far to walk. There's, it's not that big of, of an area. But just intellectually and emotionally exhausted. I was so keyed up to get there. And then I was just so thrilled to be in those spaces. I, could, I, I couldn't believe it. I was like a kid on Christmas morning. Right. I, and I actually didn't sleep that night. I was so excited by what we'd seen. And, and another element was throughout that part of the White House, you're seeing pictures of paintings of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, paintings that we've seen our whole life. And now I'm seeing the real thing right in front of me. I, I had a full White House day. I went on the East Wing tour in the morning. And that was really cool, too. The East Room, the State Dining Room, the Red Room, the Blue Room, the Green Room, uh, the, the front foyer. I think that the most stirring moment was actually upon our exit. They let you go out the front door of the White House, uh, right onto the circular driveway. And you can stand there and take all the pictures you want. I spoke to one of our listeners in Sandwich, Illinois, <laughs> a listener who is also my mother. She had last been on the East Wing tour of the White House, the one and only time in December of 1963, which I think I've spoken about before when my family went to pay our respects to John F. Kennedy after he was assassinated. She remembered that one of the rooms we saw in the tour was kind of shabby and dirty and needed like it looked like it needed to be painted. Did she go in the... East Basement tour? <laughs> I don't, I don't, I have no idea what she's saying, but only my mother would, would, would remember 53 years later that a room in the White House wasn't up to her standards. Thrilling, thrilling. We had the greatest evening of our mm. lives. We had yet another Booth One experience recently. We had the extraordinary opportunity to have a private tour of a museum exhibit here in Chicago at the Chicago History Museum. The museum has an exhibit running now through, well, probably through 2018, and it's called The Secret Lives of Objects. The Secret Lives of Objects is an exhibition featuring objects extraordinary and familiar that have emerged from the vaults of the museum's collection to tell their tales. They're not all absolutely related to each other, but they are things that have 
some sort of fascinating background and history to them. And just seeing them tells a tale. And whether they're as decadent as diamonds, uh, as telling and or perplexing as forms of outmoded technology, they all promise to give us pause and to make us ponder what stories they may reveal. We were invited to go on site with our remote microphone, and Roscoe and I uh, did so earlier this week. We were led through the exhibit by co-curator John Russick, who's vice president for interpretation and education now, and by the curator of costumes, Petra Slinkard. They were marvelous hosts, and they filled us in tremendously well on all these objects. We're going to play a little of that visit for you now. Let's take a listen, shall we, Roscoe? We're here with John Russick. John is the co-curator of this entire exhibit, The Secret Lives of Objects. Hey, thanks for having us to your house today. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad you're here. Where are we standing right now, John? Well, right now we're standing at the entrance of the exhibition, which is where we give people a sense of what this project is and how it's organized. And we're standing right next to an old uh, telephone booth. Actually, not that old for anybody uh, born after... uh, before, say, 1980 or so, they probably... I remember these. So this is a, this is a coin-operated telephone booth. Maybe you might associate with someone like Superman. This really, uh, as an object, really typifies what we try to do here at the museum all the time. Objects that are fr- often from the machine age, they're things that were made in mass numbers, but they have a particular interest uh, for Chicagoans because of the fact that they were made here or they were from here or they were used here or they're gone now. And really what we find is our job uh, as curators and, and storytellers here at the History Museum is to tell you why these things are important or why what these things meant to our world before when they were ubiquitous or when they were popular or where they were everywhere like these telephone booths once were. Where did you find this telephone booth? So this telephone booth was brought into the museum for a temporary exhibition we were doing here. It was just meant to be on a street scene. We didn't get rid of it right away and lo and behold 20 years later there are no more telephone booths. So we brought it into the collection because now it is a piece of history for the city. But we know it was from Chicago and we know it's part of our city's history. Do you know where the first payphone was in Chicago? I don't. I actually know this. It was at the Schubert Theater dated to 1901. First payphone in Chicago. Fantastic. It's a beautiful thing. It reminds me of Superman as you say. Let's move along. Let's look at something else. One of my all-time favorite objects in the entire museum's collection is this very unassuming piano. Now, this piano looks like the kind of piano you might have seen in a classroom when you were a kid or in your grandmother's house or something like that. This is one of those challenges for the museum. So much of the material we have doesn't look like anything spectacular, but the story behind it is what makes it really powerful and really helps us connect to Chicago history. This piano belonged to a man by the name of Thomas Andrew Dorsey. Thomas Andrew Dorsey is the father of gospel music, American gospel music, and it was started right here in Chicago. Some of his greatest works might have been composed on this piano. Every label in the exhibition is a narrated label, as if this object is actually telling you its story, as opposed to the curators telling you their stories. We're letting the objects sort of inhabit these labels and be their own storyteller. Gary and I have spent a lot of time walking around the exhibit, and 
something that is so interesting is the juxtaposition of things in a single case. Over here, we have a journal written by someone in the 1980s who had AIDS. Charlie Chaplin's Cain from 1915, a burned book. Is there a rhyme or reason or a logic for how these things are put together? The beauty of an exhibition like this was built around this idea that each object has a story to tell. So unlike most exhibitions you go to where there's some grand theme, right? There's a, be- there's a beginning and there's a beginning of the story and the objects are laid out in an organization to sort of carry you along with a narrative story. In this exhibition, we have 45 objects that all have individual unique stories. You can take them all in. You could take in 10%. You can do some inside a case, maybe only one. It's really up to you. There's no overarching thematic structure that we're trying to explore. So the beauty of that is, is for the visitor, they can, they can do as much or as little of this exhibition as they like. What are we looking at here? This is Hugh Hefner's address book. No doubt one of many, but this is one that we have. And it's interesting to think about Hugh Hefner's little black book. What's, what's in that? And of course, you know, your imagination immediately goes to the countless women that he must have encountered. But he was a businessman at his, at his core, right? This is a man who started a successful business, made it here in Chicago, became an international sensation. And his address book reflects that. It's not a who's who of, of busty women. It's, it's a collection of uh, addresses and businesses and people that he would have done, he would have engaged with in a variety of different ways. And so it's an interesting object that I think often sort of strikes people as unexpected because you don't necessarily think of uh, Hugh Hefner as the consummate businessman. You often think of him as the pajama-clad playboy, but uh, obviously he was quite skilled in his business dealings as well. I, I only wish... It had been rigged up in some fashion that you could turn a few pages. Well, and you can see we've blacked out information. I we, know. We, <laughs> uh, I'll never get that pretty redhead uh, phone number now. <laughs> That's right. So, I mean, part of our responsibility here is to protect people's private information. This isn't Hefner's information. This is information that he acquired from somebody else. It was in his notebook, but that doesn't mean that we can display personal phone numbers or addresses. So we black those things out. And even going back nearly 60 years, still private and confidential. We felt like, you know, these were people who could still be alive. Certainly Hugh Hefner is still alive. And we felt like we were just going to play it safe. He he might have Betty White's phone number in there. She's (laughs) still around. Roscoe and I were discussing this object we're standing in front of right now at some length, and it's something that's come up on our show on Booth One, mostly because we had both seen over the holidays a play that was done called Burning Bluebeard, which has to do with this topic. What are we looking at here, John? Well, this is the stage lamp that sparked the Iroquois Theater fire, the greatest loss of life in Chicago to fire. I mean, people often think that it must have been the Great Chicago Fire, but there were actually 600 people killed in this one theater on this one day uh, in 1903. What happened that day is that this lamp, uh, it was an arc lamp, it, it sparked, and it sparked and it caught curtains backstage on fire. So there's a full crowd in the theater. It was a matinee filled with families, lots of kids there for this play, Mr. Bluebeard. The fire gets started backstage, they are aware of the fire burning, but they're, they're not uh, immediately trying to get people out of the theater. They're trying to keep people calm. But what eventually happens is, is the fire breaks through from backstage, enters the area of the 
theater where the audience is, and of course people immediately start to crush for the exits. And one of the worst things about this fire, and one of the reasons this fire is so important in American history is that many of the people who died in this fire died because they couldn't get out of the theater. The doors in the theater opened inward. So you can imagine a crush of people moving toward the exits, trying to get out, but they needed to pull the doors toward them when they got there. And they couldn't do that because there were so many people pushing against them. And this is really the advent of fire safety crash doors. John, how in the world uh, with a fire like that did this object get salvaged and then wind up in the hands of the Chicago History Museum? With many things that come to the museum, People don't actually know what to do with this material in in the immediate aftermath. Things like this were saved for the inquest. Some of these materials were kept by the owners of the theater. Some of these things that were kept by the owners of the theater, people often suspected that they kept them in order to protect themselves, that they, they hid things like these hinges that only opened the doors inward, that wouldn't wouldn't open the other way. These were found on the theater owner's property after he passed. So things like that you know, don't immediately come to the museum. They become evidence in a court hearing or an investigation. And then when those are over, lots of times there's, there's no purpose for them. And maybe they come immediately to the museum at that point. Other times they wind up in a storage facility or something like that. They come to us much later. It's part of what makes working in the museum so interesting is that we often get material that comes into the museum that the event might have happened 100, 150 years ago, but we just acquired something really amazing five, ten years ago because someone's held this piece of material for a long time. And maybe when they first got it, they didn't think it was all that amazing. But, you know, over time, they become really powerful touchstones to our city's history. I find this absolutely thrillingly fascinating. And as the sign next to the exhibit piece says, my biggest secret was that I even exist. This is a copy of an intelligence report made by the Chicago Police Department, also called, at that point, the Red Squad. Between the 1930s and 1980s, this secret group, they spied on people that they suspected of being, quote, dangerous, including communists, immigration and labor sympathizers, homosexuals, and others. This card tracks the activity of famous Chicagoan Studs Terkel, who was a TV and radio show host who loved to talk to people, and people loved to listen to him. If he was still alive, he would have been a guest on our show. He would have loved to have been a guest on our show. I, I imagine he sat in booth one a number of times, don't you? I imagine, and I used to speak to him from time to time. In your radio days? In, uh, no, when I was doing publicity for um, a nightclub, the last supper club in Chicago, and he still had a program on WFMT. And if you called him before 9 o'clock in the morning, he would answer the phone himself. And he always answered the phone this way. Studs. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Turkle. It's Roscoe Fraser. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's fun. He was a great guy. Great Chicagoan. One of the objects in the exhibit that garners the most attention if people linger on it at all, once again, it's sort of an unassuming object. It's just a metal dipper with a wooden handle. And people stop, sometimes they read the label, and when they do, they're almost always fascinated by this story. So that dipper is from the Titanic. 
And of course, why would an object, people always ask, why would an object from the Titanic be at the Chicago History Museum? And the story is that a doctor who was um, from Chicago, Dr. Blackmar, was on the Carpathia, the ship that was sent to rescue passengers to try and get to the Titanic as it was sinking, one of the ships that was in the North Atlantic at the time. And the Carpathia came to the site where the Titanic had been. The Titanic was already gone. Dr. Blackmar was on the boat. He was in a, you know, in a rescue capacity suddenly, and he actually took for himself two souvenirs from the Titanic. He got a life vest and a dipper that was used to bail water out of the boat. We eventually acquired both of those objects, and the dipper is here on display now. Does the vest say Titanic? It does. And where is that? We gave it to the Smithsonian Institution because they didn't have anything from the Titanic. So we, the Chicago History Museum, donated that one object to the American History Museum in Washington, D.C., and it's on display today. And if you go into their maritime exhibition space and you come across the Titanic vest in their space, you will see that it's a gift of the Chicago History Museum. And, And did they give you something in return? Just their thanks. Wow. Well, that was nice of you. I, I think when you give something to the Smithsonian, to, to, to the country, to the people of this yes. country, that you don't really get something reciprocal most of the time. I, I would have bartered. Yeah, you I, would I have bartered. I, I would have wanted, like, the ruby slippers. <laughs> I think it's a fair trade. It would make total sense, you know, yeah. since The Wizard of Oz was written right here in Chicago. Uh, truly. Ah. We're going to move on to... What I think is the most significant object for Roscoe and myself (laughs) in this room. We are standing in front of Booth One. This is the original Booth One. John, it's unbelievable that this actually still exists, and I want you to tell uh, us and our listeners all about it. To know the history of Booth One is to know the history of Chicago as a center of transportation in America. You have to sort of cast your mind back to a day before airplanes when people traveled across the country by rail. And so famous people from uh, Washington, D.C. or New York traveling across the country to California stopped in Chicago. And they often stopped overnight, maybe a couple of nights before they got the next train that would take them to the West Coast or to the East Coast. The Ambassador East Hotel, where the pump room was, was a very famous stopover for people who were in town, maybe just for overnight, maybe they were going to be here for a couple of days. And this was the place where if you were in the paparazzi, if you were a reporter looking to find out who was in Chicago and who was doing what, you'd come to the Ambassador East. You might slip somebody a little money and find out who was in Booth One that night and hope that you could snap a photograph. And of course, everybody who was there was expecting the sort of attention that would come. Hence the telephone jack that you see in the arm of the, of the booth. So this uh, booth came to us when they redesigned the interior of the pump room. Uh, so this booth came in 1980. You can see that it was, it's in pretty amazing condition, right? Well, it's in, partly it's in amazing condition because they reupholstered it for us. So this is oh. sort of classic, often mistaken thinking by donors for the museum, right? They thought that the nice thing to do would be to make it look brand new again, right? Oh, no. So I'm going to show you a little something that I think you'll think is interesting because the table is actually the Booth One table, but they didn't restore the table. So you'll get a sense of just how used this booth was. 
John, John is now crossing the, the velvet rope. And he's, the, the security guard is wringing her hands in despair. Here comes the Secret Service. We better hurry up. He's lifted up the damask uh, oh white God. tablecloth, and we're looking at the actual sort of vinyl or leather-covered wooden table that sits between these three seating areas of the booth. And there's what? What are the? What are those stains? They're cigarette burns, and they're uh, hot plate. Burns, burns and just anything that would have deformed this table because this was a this was a table that was always covered in uh, fancy tablecloths and and table settings. Um, you could imagine that the booth might have looked a lot more like this about the time they they donated it to the museum. Nevertheless, the rest of it, the furniture, the structure of the booth is the same, and you really get a sense of the proportions here. The idea that there might have been a crowd around someone like a Clark Gable or a Frank, Lana Turner, Frank Sinatra. <laughs> Tallulah Bankhead was one of the great stories that I heard recently. We had a, a gentleman by the name of Jonathan Harding come and visit us right after the exhibit opened because he had been a maitre d' at the pump room, and he had a story about serving Tallulah Bankhead in this booth and playing poker with her later up in her room. That's, we, we've got to track him down. <laughs> we absolutely have to talk so, so to wait, him. So wait, this was in continual use at the pump room for 40 years? Is yes. that right? Yeah, the, the, the piece of furniture. The piece right. of furniture. Yeah, yeah. They've actually sort of reinvested in that model there now. I think they still have the big horseshoe-shaped booths there in, in that room. They still call it the pump room. Fascinating, wonderful stuff. We're here with Petra Slinkard of the Chicago History Museum. Petra is the curator of costumes presently and was uh, formerly a curator, uh, curatorial associate of textile and fashion arts at the Indianapolis Museum of Art. Uh, thank you for having us to your house today, Petra. <laughs> of course, my pleasure. Uh, tell us, what does... What does a curator of costumes do? Um, I'm writing label copy. I'm doing research. I'm looking at uh, research requests that come in from outside parties who are interested in learning more about our collection. Uh, I'm doing exhibition planning. And uh, typically we're also fielding acquisition gifts, um, offers that come in through our online um, resources. Um, a lot of times things come in unexpectedly. People will just uh, reach out to us, but if we know that there is something that we want, um, we have no problem going out and trying to find it. What's your favorite piece here at the museum? Within this exhibition, um, probably the teddy bear coat, uh, because I think it's fun and I like that it brings together uh, an opportunity for children to relate to an object that is expensive and essentially off the runway, but it also allows fashion students an opportunity to look at fashion design history, and then you just have individuals who are completely perplexed by it, and I sort of love that it, it combines all of those factors, and it provides an opportunity to start conversation. Within the museum's collection, that is a very difficult uh, question, because there's so much. We don't ask easy questions on this <laughs> one. You can, you, can, you can be flexible. You can give us the top well, five you know, greatest hits, most popular. One object that is actually quite sad, but I think to be very powerful, is uh, the cape that Mary Todd uh, Lincoln was wearing the evening that um, President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, which just in and of itself is a, a tremendous story. And the fact that this object uh, represents that moment in time, I find to be really powerful and moving. But we also have a fantastic couture collection with designs by Christian Dior and Yves Saint Laurent and Christian Lacroix and Givenchy. Uh, one piece that tends to stand out a lot to people is Herbert uh, Givenchy 
dress that was worn by Audrey Hepburn. Uh, so we have highlights such as that. Oh, was, uh, it, was, it, was it worn in, worn in Breakfast at Tiffany's? It was not worn in Breakfast at Tiffany's, but it was worn uh, in a Vogue editorial from 1964. We also have a um, wonderful selection of Chicago designers. Chicago had a very rich millinery history, so we have great hat collection that represents a lot of uh, that tradition. You know, we're standing very close to the teddy bear coat, which you just referenced. Yes. Can, you, can you describe what it is? Well, to describe it, it is a multicolored hip-length coat uh, made of plush teddy bears of red, green, purple, and blue. The teddy bears are fused uh, together or sewn together in such a way that um, it sort of looks like a, a big heap of um, plush teddy bears. And yet what sort of upon first glance kind of looks like a, a strange mismatch, uh, maybe doesn't make sense, maybe doesn't even really look uh, very refined, maybe crude, is actually a very well-constructed, well-thought-out piece of clothing. Who's this made by and what was the purpose of it? Uh, this is made by a Moroccan-born French fashion designer whose name is Jean-Charles de Casabajac. He um, created this in the late 90s, and he did so um, in a limited run. So this is a, a, a rare piece, if you will. But Casabajac, along with his contemporary Franco Moschino, were very well known and are well known for sort of being irreverent of the fashion system. Um, and so looking at individuals who are paying thousands of dollars for handmade or very well-made clothing, and then producing something like this that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek and sort of questions, you know, what is high fashion and, and what can be high fashion? And for this object, I think the secret here is, you know, why? Why does this even exist at all? And what it does is it provides us an opportunity to go a little bit deeper and to look at some of the other objects that Casabajac is known for, which is, you know, creating a Kermit the Frog coat for Lady Gaga or working with celebrities like Madonna or even creating a, an ensemble that uses um, the likeness of President Obama. So, you know, drawing on aspects of popular culture to create one-of-a-kind garments. I, I have to say this coat looks very warm and very comfortable. <laughs> if you could get a, a Roscoe-sized version of this, I can't imagine that I could walk down the street without someone's, you know, every person I encounter stopping me and saying, sir, what, what, what the hell are you doing? I think a lot of times the assumption is, is that people don't actually wear these things, but if you even look at the fashion blogs today, this particular aesthetic is sort of being revisited for individuals who are younger and um, are, you know, looking for inspiration and a means to express their identity and their self-expression. I think that this is a perfect example. And in fact, Casabay Jacques has a great quote uh, regarding this particular particular uh, jacket, and it says, to get the full impact of the individual teddy bears, you need to snuggle up to the wearer. I like that. <laughs> I, I do, too. I think you should get one. Well, we were speaking of, of hats, Petra, and we're standing in front of a small exhibit here that has some jewelry and two hats. One has a, well, I guess it's a choker or something that says, I belonged to Chicago's first lady. What does all of that mean? So what we're standing in front of is a beautiful diamond choker, or some people refer to it as a dog collar, so something that sits very close to the neck. It is completely encrusted in diamonds, and it's a pretty Pretty magnificent piece. And this was something that was worn. Um, the first lady that uh, you referred to is Bertha Palmer. And uh, this was a gift from her husband. 
And the hat that you see next to it is one that was designed many years later. So the necklace dates to about 1900, but the hat that sits next to it is from 1950. And that is because this necklace was passed down uh, through Bertha's family. And when it reached the individual um, who was sort of next in line to wear it, uh, the necklace didn't quite fit right, and it was also not really of the moment, if you will. And so what this individual chose to do was to have um, the clasp broken and asked Chicago's um, famed milliner, Bess Ben, to create a specific hat uh, to uh, mount it to. And so what then was a choker um, then becomes sort of a headband or a, a sort of a, a tiara, if you will. You'd need a fairly substantially long neck for that to look really good. A, a long, skinny neck. Yes. Yeah. Uh, unlike my friend Roscoe. <laughs> yes. I wanted to move on to this piece that's right next to it, and the title card here says, I am a Picasso. This is an extraordinary piece of headwear. Tell us a little bit about this, Petra. This is a Picasso in the sense that it is in uh, the tradition of Picasso. So again, this is a piece by uh, Chicago's famed milliner, Bess Ben, or uh, Benjamin uh, Greenfield. Benjamin was very well known in Chicago and outside of Chicago for creating hats of very high quality, but also that were a little bit quirky and maybe a little bit different. And this particular hat belongs to a series of five that he created specifically for the opening of the Art Institute's Picasso exhibition in 1957. Wow. Oh, there's the Picasso connection. Yes, exactly. So if you can imagine, uh, you know, five ladies walking into the the gala wearing these extraordinary hats, you can uh, be sure that people were turning their heads. Without question. At the risk of sounding shallow, (laughs) I'm looking at a whole bunch of diamonds. Yes, you are. Do we have a carat, total carat weight for that necklace, or do we know the value? Well, we have values, but we're not at liberty to disclose that. But it is uh, is a significant piece. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, and you have a you have a lot of things from Bertha Palmer. If we I do. Remember. Maybe ten years ago or so, the Chicago History Museum mounted a Bertha Palmer exhibition. A good Chicagoan knows who Bertha Palmer is, but someone might be listening to this broadcast who's not in Chicago. Can you frame up the time in which she lived and her role in Chicago history? Bertha was a socialite, but she was a businesswoman, and what she's probably most known for, um, beyond you know her civic engagements. Uh, was that she was the female um, chairman for the World's Columbian Exposition and really uh, took a great amount of authority and ownership on creating the World's Columbian Exposition and making it you know, such a wonderful um, opportunity for women to participate in the Women's Pavilion. In 1893? In 1893, yes. Magnificent in its size and its structure is this loving cup. What can you tell us about this, John? So this loving cup was made for Admiral Dewey. This was the guy who was the supreme commander of the of the armed forces in the sense that he was the America's top military man. He had successfully fought the war in the Philippines and he was a national hero. And so a newspaper in New York took up a calling for people to donate a dime to uh, contribute to a some sort of statue for a gift to recognize Admiral Dewey. Ten cents. They wanted ten cents from as many people as they could get. Right. And so an individual couldn't contribute more than one dime. They collected a total of 70,000 dimes. 
And this is back when dimes were all real silver. So then they melted them down, and they worked with a company called Gorham in Boston, and they made this beautiful loving cup to Admiral Dewey. There are scenes of his ship, his uh, flagship there in the middle of the cup, and you'll also see places where the dimes are still uh, visible in a couple of the motifs here. So these sort of sea monster motifs have uh, like fish scales that use the dimes, and then you see them in a couple of places as bands. It's just a beautiful piece, totally unique. There's nothing like this any place else. Many people ask, you know, why do you have that here? Admiral Dewey wasn't from Chicago. You know, we're not on an ocean. You know, it's not like we're a center of the, uh, of the Navy. It turns out that uh, Admiral Dewey's son did come to Chicago and open up a business here. And uh, when he passed, he donated the cup to the Chicago Historical Society, and that's how it wound up in our collection. How much does something like this weigh? I, if I were going to estimate, I would say maybe roughly 100 pounds. It, oh. it comes apart. It's in, actually, I think it's in five different pieces. It probably weighs more like 250 pounds. Yeah, to give our listeners some perspective, uh, this thing is probably eight to eight and a half feet tall. Go to our website and you'll be able to see photographs of it. But to give you some perspective, it's, it's ginormous. <laughs> it's really, really cool. How much of your collection is on display versus what's in storage? Less than 1% is on display what? at any one time. Yeah, we, have, we, we estimate that we have over 20 million things in the collection. So the challenge always is, is to make sure that we are putting out great Chicago stories, exposing our collection to the public, and yet we don't want to just have a wall of stuff without any interpretation or any sort of historical insight into them. I mean, that's the core of an exhibition, is to try and expose people to some beautiful artifacts, some great stories, engage them with their city's history, and that's what this show is all about. It's, it's not meant to be encyclopedic, and it's not meant to be completely representative of the entire collection, but everything in here gives you a clue into the kinds of materials that we have and the breadth of the collection. What's your criteria for taking new things into the collection? Really what we're looking for is something that we don't already have. If it's duplicative, we won't accept it. But what we're really looking for are objects that tell good stories about people, places, events, um, moments in history. What we're also really looking for is you know, any kind of support material that might help. So, you know, if someone is going to bring me a dress that they wore at a particular event, the first question that I'm going to ask them is, do you have any photos of yourself wearing it? Do you have the receipt? Um, may we sit down and I will ask you a series of questions about, you know, where were you? Who were you with? What were you thinking? Where did you buy this? You know, so while we will collect an object, what we're actually collecting are the stories that are associated with the object. My, my mother carefully archived my entire childhood. Really? Yes. So she would take me, buy me a nice outfit. Then I would put on the outfit, and we would go to Olin Mills, the photographer. Oh, I love that. And she'd have my portrait taken. So at my mother's house, in a big trunk, are all of these boxes with an outfit I wore once, which she carefully cleaned, wrapped back in the oh. original tissue, put back in the Marshall Fields box, and then taped to it is the photograph of me wearing that outfit. If I become very famous, you may want these. <laughs> I was going to say, well, Andy, I, think, I think there's a ways to go in the fame department before <laughs> she might accept those boxes uh, of yours, Roscoe. Although it. they sound well, fascinating. Well, and your mother seems like a curator or archivist at heart. I yes. mean, what great detail to be paid to those garments. Yeah. 
Petra Slinkard, thank you so very much for thank your time you. today. Curator of costumes at the uh, Chicago uh, History Museum. You've been fascinating, and we enjoyed our time with you a lot. Thanks a lot. Thank Great. you. John, we have a pistol here, which looks as if it were from the Civil War era. Give us the uh, background on, on this piece in the display. So this is a Colt revolver. It was owned by Owen Brown. Owen Brown was the son of the famous John Brown, the abolitionist who was in bloody Kansas trying to fight the anti-slavery battle there, wound up in Harper's Ferry, was trying to incite a slave revolt there. Owen Brown uh, was with his father, both in Kansas and in Harper's Ferry. He had this gun with him at both places. Of course, John Brown was famously captured at Harper's Ferry, and he was executed for, for that. Owen wound up in Canada with the gun. The gun wound up coming back to Chicago for a display for the 1893 World's Fair here in Chicago. Some locals decided that it should stay, that it was an awesome piece of American history, and it belonged at the Chicago Historical Society. So they acquired the gun, they donated it to the museum, and then we put it on display in our galleries. And in 1949, sorry, 1948, it was stolen out of the museum. We reported it stolen, of course, and reported to the police, reported to our insurance company, and made it known throughout the gun collecting community that this weapon belonged to the History Museum, that it was an important gun of American history and needed to be returned. And lo and behold, in 2010, we were contacted by a gun collector who will remain nameless, who had acquired the gun somehow, when he had gone to sell it, had discovered that it was stolen property. Mm -hmm. And he contacted the museum and said, you know, I didn't steal this gun, but I know that I have it and it belongs to you. So he asked if we would be willing to just get it back. And of course, we were happy as clams to just reacquire the gun. And it's been a prized possession ever since here at the museum. John, we were at this case earlier with our newfound friend, Petra, uh, looking at the diamond-encrusted choker and the Picasso-like hat. We also noticed another object in here that Roscoe is absolutely fascinated with. Can you tell us a little bit about this ring of keys? So this ring of keys is part of a pretty large collection of material that we have here at the museum related to the life and assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Abraham Lincoln has been a a very important uh, uh, figure in our collecting history here. We have uh, some um, really remarkable materials related to him. We have the bed in which he died. We have his top hat. We have the carriage that he rode into Washington on when he was first arriving in in Washington, D.C. And we have these keys, which are from Ford's Theater. So these are the keys that unlock the whole building. This is part of a, a large collection and make Uh, the Lincoln materials at the museum, one of the most important Lincoln collections in the world. Are there things in your collection that you're just thrilled to have and would break your heart if you had to give them to the Smithsonian or or lost track of them? But what are some of your favorite objects here at the museum? Well, some of my favorite objects in the museum are on display here. I was part of the team that put together this project, mm-hmm. so I got to put out a, a few of them. One of them is just around the corner here, the burned remains of a psalm book, which was in the original Chicago Historical Society, which burned to the ground in the 
fire of 1871 and the Great Fire of Chicago. It is actually the only remnant of the collection from that building. And it was saved from the rubble and it made its way back to the museum. It's a treasured object here that reminds us how fleeting all of this is, that our understanding of history is something that can be taken from us if we don't protect these collections, but also share those stories with the public so other people are engaged. It's, it's almost mind-boggling that it even still exists. Yeah, with, with everything here, and, and even things we didn't touch on, and this is only, in the whole museum, we're only seeing 1% of your entire collection. Well, the beauty of our collection is that it's, uh, so much of it is open to the public. Even though there's only 1% on display at any one time, all of our documentary records, our entire archive is accessible. And if you come to the museum and you're doing research and you want to look at architectural drawings or you want to look at photographic collections or you want to study our documentary resources, all of that paper-based material, which is the vast majority of our collection, can be paged through our research center. So if you're interested in the past and you really want to dig in yourself, there's a place for that here, too. John, thanks again for your Thank time you. and your, your, your wisdom and uh, just the insight into all of these objects. It's, it's a beautiful display, and we're so pleased to have seen it with it you. It's totally my pleasure. Thanks for coming. Right. Thank, thank you. I want to again thank John Russick and Petra Slinkert for their generosity and time in taking us through the exhibit. Roscoe, you were fascinated by this exhibit. I know one of them was that diamond choker that belonged to Bertha Palmer. What, why, what was so appealing about that for you? Well, there were a couple of things. She had to have her, it was a diamond choker that was quite tall. So she must have had a neck like a giraffe. And, and her neck must have been 12 inches around, a tiny, long neck. It was diamonds. It must have been hundreds of diamonds, and some of them were quite large. That is an extremely valuable piece. And I, I felt sort of common asking about, what, what would the carat weight of this be, and what's the value? But it's amazing that things just exist and are maintained and didn't get lost to history. The desk upon which Robert E. Lee signed the surrender papers for the Civil War is there next to uh, John Brown's printing press, which had been (laughs) thrown into a river at one point and rescued. Yeah, very cool. A hymnal that survived the Chicago fire to see, my God, you know, that someone had the foresight to say, let's hold on to this. This has meaning. The The keys, the keys to Ford's theater. Very cool. They were strange looking keys too. We didn't really describe those very well during the live broadcast, uh, but they were odd keys. They were like old-fashioned, except... Giant. Giant, and they had holes in them, and it was quite the ring of keys. Yes. (laughs) I I think that maybe my favorite piece, besides Booth One, of course, Mm -hmm. was the Titanic Dipper. I just couldn't believe that that really existed. Yeah. It was also very cool. It's pr- fairly large, um, a good well, size. It's a big dipper. It's a big dipper, that's for sure. I think maybe that and the provenance of where that came from was um, certainly one of my favorite things. And that they had a life vest that said Titanic on it, and they gave it away. They gave it away to the Smithsonian. I also uh, liked the teddy bear coat. Oh, God. <laughs> Which was extremely <laughs> strange, but fascinating. Uh, how many teddy bears do you think that was made of? Maybe That's, a dozen? 
Oh, no, several dozen. Several dozen. I think two dozen. And they were in bright primary colors. Red, blue, yellow, green. Green isn't a primary color. Go to our website at www.booth-one.com to get a look at that. Uh, or head on over to the Chicago History mm-hmm. Museum and have a look at the exhibit yourself. It's at 1601 North mm-hmm. Clark Street in Chicago here, uh, Monday through Saturday, 930 to 430. Sunday, they're open from 12 to 5. You'll see the original booth one there. I think if we reached out to the people at the pump room and explained who we are and what we're doing and ask if we could do some shows from the new booth one, how could they say no? How could they say no? We're pretty self-contained. My God, and we thought about it right now in the process of doing this podcast. It would our be our awesome. listeners are hearing us, hearing the gears turn in our heads. We should also mention that one of our favorite things about the White House after the White House was going to the, the Hay Adams Hotel right across the street from the White House to have uh, a... Across from Lafayette Park. Yeah, yes, you walk through have, Lafayette Park. You know, have a drink at their swanky bar called Off the Record where you ordered a martini that was roughly the size of your head. <laughs> the largest cocktail I've ever seen in my life. And it's, it's certainly uh, big enough to drown your political sorrows in. Yes. And all of the coasters are hand-drawn caricatures of prominent political figures. And right now, all the prominent political figures are, of course, the GOP and the Democratic nominees. Right. And and who did you get for your coaster by great coincidence? He threw it down in front of me and slapped down a martini, and I looked down, and who is it? Carly Fiorina, my ex-girlfriend. <laughs> can't get away from you those can't get away from her. We should move on to our Kiss of Death segment. Dick Bradsell. Any ideas? Dick Bradsell. He invented kitty litter? Very close. (laughs) Not close at all. (laughs) He died. He was only 56 years old. He had a brain cancer. He was a connoisseur, or the connoisseur, of cocktails. Dick Bradsell, a career bartender who was considered the father of the cocktail revival that took root in London in the 1990s and continues to flourish today, died on Saturday in his home. Mr. Bradsell took up the cause of mixology as a teenager in the 1970s. At the time, bartending was not considered a career for the ambitious, and British drinking habits did not extend far beyond a pint at the pub and an occasional gin and tonic. You're you're not a big cocktail drinker are you roscoe i mean people don't like make fancy you, cocktails yeah, fancy no, no, who cares? i don't cocktail. care about that that's that's for amateurs <laughs> uh but by the turn of the century his influence was felt not just in london but throughout britain and as far away as australia thanks to bartenders who were either trained by him directly or inspired by his cocktail creations you are familiar with bartenders though aren't you roscoe <laughs> yeah, yes <laughs> you, you you know you know a few of i've those. known a few bartenders A number of his concoctions became modern classics around the world, in particular something called the Bramble. The Bramble is a mix of gin, lemon juice, sugar, and creme de mure. Creme de mure is a blackberry-flavored liqueur Mm. um, topped with a blackberry garnish. And the vodka espresso, more commonly known as the espresso martini made with vodka, coffee liqueur, and fresh espresso. Oh, my gosh. I think that's, That'd be fantastic. You'd never pass out. I think that's something we need to wake <laughs> yes. up to. Mr. Bradsell first became known as a creative drink inventor at the Zanzibar, Soho Brasserie, and most notably Fred's Club, a hip private club uh, where London's art and media elite gathered in the 80s and 90s. He became a bar world celebrity in 1994 
when the nightlife entrepreneur Oliver Payton drafted him to be head bartender at the Atlantic Bar and Grill at the multi-floor subterranean restaurant and bar in the heart of Soho. The Atlantic was something Londoners had not yet seen, a night spot that was not just a class apart from stuffy hotel bars and vapid casinos and discos, but also kept hours far beyond those of most pubs. On the lowest level, Mr. Bradsell held court at a bar named after him called Dick's. Uh, Dick's Bar. Uh. The Atlantic made Mr. Bradsell famous throughout Britain and much sought after. He stayed a mere six months, however. Thereafter, he kept a nomadic pattern, setting up the drink program at a new bar, training its staff, and then moving on to the next job. Anytime you find Dick at a bar, that's the place to be. This, by the way, is from the New York Times, written by Robert Simonson. Richard Arthur Bradsell was born May 4th, 1959, in Bishop's Stortford, England. A rebellious son, he left home in 1977 and immersed himself in London nightlife. An uncle of his who ran the Naval and Military Club near Piccadilly Circus got him a job there when he was just 19. He worked through every job, including bartender, making pink gins for the retired officers, and developing a respect for drinking styles of the past. Mr. Bradsell was a quirky character with a clipped way of speaking. He was not straight out of central casting as a bartender, to be sure. In a profession dominated for decades in London by immigrants, primarily Italians, seeking to get a leg up, he was British-born and actually wanted to bartend as a career. He took his work seriously. David Embry's 1946 book, The Fine Art of Mixing Drinks, was his Bible. I think I may have to get that for you for a belated birthday present. Are you a connoisseur of fancy drinks like that? I am a connoisseur of people who are connoisseurs of making those fancy drinks. I remember once we were in Florida, uh, my wife and I, and we went to a hotel. The bar was actually in the lobby, and it was quite small. It only had eight stools around it. And we befriended the young bartender there, as, <laughs> as my wife is wont to do. Yes. And he was a mixologist like this. He would say, tell me how you feel. What, what are you feeling right now? How, what's your mood? What sort of, what kind of day have you had? And, you know, you tell him in a few words that either you were happy or you're tired or you're depressed or you're just exhilarated or you're just relaxed or sedate. And he said, I'm going to make you something. And then we would watch him make something out of ingredients that I had no idea where they were coming from. But he would come up with some concoction. And I'm not a big fan of them, but everything he put in front of me, and we were there for a week, not at the bar, (laughs) but at the hotel. I probably visited that bar six or seven times. Every time he put something down in front of me, and it was always different, I loved it. Uh, I I would recommend uh, being adventurous every once in a while, Roscoe. Well, uh, you know, a friend of mine and a listener to this show bartends twice a week, really because he just enjoys it. He likes mixing a good cocktail. He enjoys being, he's at a club where there's live singing and entertainment. Mm-hmm. Likes being around that, loves, loves to mix a good cocktail, takes a lot of pride in it. And one day he was waiting on a woman who had a, she'd had a few cocktails before she arrived and she was being testy about the amount of alcohol he was putting into her drinks. And he said, ma'am, you know, I'm giving you the standard amount. I'm giving you a... A good pour. A good pour. It's a good pour, madam. 
And she continued to harass him. And he said, you know what? Why don't I show up at your office on Monday morning and tell you how much you suck at your job? (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm not appreciating this. Well, see, that's why there Dick Bradsell was a professional Mm. at what he did. You went to watch him work Mm. and admire his his creations. Despite his very public line of work, Mr. Bradsell disliked the limelight and in later years had an almost hermit-like reputation. His final bartending job and one of his longest lasting was at the Pink Chihuahua, (laughs) a nondescript bar underneath a Mexican restaurant in Soho. This was Soho, London. The Pink Chihuahua. Chihuahua. A nondescript bar. He could be a contrarian. He once said that of all the bars where he had worked, his favorite was the Colony Room, a famously divey den where the likes of the artists Francis Bacon and Lucian Freud went to slum and where shaking cocktails was discouraged. The owner hated me making cocktails so much, he used to hide my equipment, Mr. Bradsell said. When a fellow bartender arrived, he said he improvised and used his fingers to strain the friend's drink. (laughs) (laughs) Dick Bradsell, connoisseur of cocktails, dead at 56, way, way, way too young. Uh, This has been an amazingly eclectic and kind of, uh, well, very Booth one-y podcast. I know, from the Oval Office to Mary Todd Lincoln's earrings. (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) Totally amazing. Well, thank you for tuning in, everyone. Uh, This is Gary Zabinski, your host for Booth One. Have a look on our website at www.booth-one.com, and you'll see lots of pictures of the things that we talked about today. Roscoe, thanks for for your uh, companionship. Thanks. And I'm Roscoe, the lovable sidekick. Hail to the chief. Hail to the chief. Bum, 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 b